so we started this series looking at what it looks like to be the church in the world today. And so a couple of weeks ago, we started with talking about worship in a consumer culture. And we, we were reminded that we don't gather here to be entertained or to be served. Rather, we gather here uh, to worship. And so that means that we are not the audience. The people on stage aren't the performers. We are, God is the audience when we gather. Last week, we talked about discipleship in an instant society, where we talked through the disciplines and the practice of prayer and giving and how we could engage in a way where these, these, these move from being things that we have to do or we're supposed to do to things that we get to do. Today, we want to talk about community in a digital age. And I think this is important because loneliness, according to Mother Teresa, is the leprosy of modern society. So much so that the United Kingdom, just this last week, appointed a minister of loneliness, right? It is a poverty that runs deeper and more hidden than economic poverty, right? There's nothing more terrible than the pain of loneliness, and part of it is because no one wants to admit that they're lonely. I mean, the stigma of loneliness is so great that when people will freely admit that they are lonely when they're given an anonymous survey, but when they're asked to identify themselves, those very same people are quick to claim the contrary, that they are independent and self-sufficient, almost as a way to kind of, they see it as this desire for relationship is some sort of evidence for weakness. Which is why when the 20th century novelist Thomas Wolfe wrote his book, The Anatomy of Loneliness, and he concluded with this, it stirred so much controversy during the time, he said this, the whole conviction of my life now rests upon the belief that loneliness, far from being a rare and curious phenomenon peculiar to myself and to a few other solitary people, is the central and inevitable feature of human existence. And as tempting as it may be for the optimists here in the room to dismiss these words as written by a pessimist in some dark moment of despair, I think most of us at least secretly would concur that loneliness is something that all of us feel. And those of us who don't feel it, we're just particularly good at ignoring, suppressing, or covering up what Thomas Wolfe calls the central and inevitable feature of human existence. And so we share in this common struggle together, whether, and it's not just introverts, it's extroverts as well. It's not just single people, it's married people as well. Which is why Albert Schweitzer said, we are all so much together and we are all dying of loneliness. Loneliness is painful because we were created for relationships, we were created for community, and we were created for friendship. And so I want to propose to you this idea, a bit counterintuitive, but thoroughly biblical through and through. So if you're taking notes, here's something for us to consider. That we experience loneliness not because there's something wrong with us, but because there is something right with us. Okay, let's kind of unpack this. When you look at scripture, first of all, even before time began, when there was nothing, there was community and friendship in who God is, in, in who he is, right? From all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what we call the doctrine of the Trinity, which we don't have time to go into today, uh, were in perfect community together, loving and serving and delighting in one another. 
in other words, I think the, the way we could consider this, this is the very nature of God shows us that uh, there was never a time when friendship did not exist. There was a time uh, when marriage didn't exist, and there will come a time in the new heavens and new earth when marriage will be no more. But there was never a time, and there will never ever be a time when friendship did not and does not exist. That's how foundational friendship is to our lives. The, uh, relationships and community and friendship. And it, it also explains why we experience loneliness. It's a universal phenomenon. Right? It's because we experience that because we are made in the image of God. Not only that, but as you read through Scripture and the story of creation in the book of Genesis, uh, God is creating everything in this world, and you, we read a common refrain that's repeated over and over again throughout Genesis chapter 1, and this is what it says, and God said, and it was so. So in the first chapter, you, you see God, and God said, let there be light. Let there be sun and moon and stars. Let there be fish of the sea and birds of the air and beasts of the land, and it was so. And then after each day of creation, it it says, it concludes by saying, and God saw that it was good, right? The writer is just simply trying to extol the power and glory of God and express the incomparable beauty and wonder of that is creation. And so according to Genesis, everything in creation is good. That is until the final act, right? As a postlude, God creates man, he forms him from the dust of the ground, and then he sees his condition, and then he declares, this is not good. So what is it about that situation that God declared not good after repeatedly saying, good, 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 not good? Is this a case of like creator's remorse? Is this like God, God like somehow likes women better than men? So he looked down at Adam and said, not good. No, this is a radical statement about the fundamental necessity of human relationships. God looked at the fact that Adam was alone, and he, he declared, not good. So what does he do? He creates animals, and he brings the animals to them, and Adam names all these animals, and it says that there was nobody that was fit for Adam. This is not good. Now, we have to keep in mind that the fall has not yet occurred. Sin and disobedience has not happened to spoil the relationship between God and man. We have to remember that Adam enjoyed a state of perfect intimacy with God himself. And yet God says, this is not good. And so uh, uh, I like to phrase it this way. Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect. Adam was lonely because he was perfect. Adam was lonely because he was made in the image of God. And because God is in perfect community and in friendship with with himself, right, we are made for community. We are made for friendship and we are made for relationship. And so the question is, have you ever been lonely? Are you lonely now? Do you know why you're lonely? You're not lonely because there is something wrong with you. You are lonely because you are made in the imago Dei. That's Latin for the image of God. And so sometimes when people feel lonely, uh, you may have friends or even pastors or church leaders who, with good intention, will often say to you, you know, God is all you need. 
right? We all have this God-shaped void that no other person can fill. And I often heard this when I was in college, right? And campus ministries will reiterate this. As a young man, you're trying to look for that soulmate, the person you're going to marry, and in your struggle with loneliness, this is often said, all you need is God. And on one hand, that's true. I mean, even St. Augustine echoed this sentiment when he said, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. But apparently, as we look at the story of Adam, right, the splendors of the Garden of Eden, a perfect environment, or even the reality of having a perfect intimate relationship with God was not enough. And so according to the writer of Genesis, while we have a God-shaped void that only God can fill, we also have a human-shaped void that even God himself will not fill. Nothing else can take the place of this void. Not a, a perfect GPA, not the perfect job, not achievement or money or busyness, not even God himself. Relationships are so fundamental to our lives. I mean, who would ever imagine that solitary confinement would be a form of punishment? And yet it is. Friendship is so fundamental to who God is and to who we are as human beings, so much so that the less you need friends, the less you need other people, the more self-sufficient you are, the less you are like God. And yet friendship is the easiest of all relationships to ignore and place on the back burner. And so today as we talk about community, uh, we're, we're doing something different today. We're actually not, uh, instead of preaching with a solitary voice, we're actually going to preach in community. And so uh, I'm going to tag team John. We'll take this next part. I'm going to need that clicker. Oh, yeah. There we go. That's right. And we're going to call on a random person to go next, so just get ready. <laughs> uh, just kidding. Um, you know, with friendship on the back burner, we live in a particular time and place that, that what comes in and what becomes appealing is the role of technology. It becomes a, a compelling alternative. And, and to be clear, uh, I'm not anti-technology. You will notice that I always preach on my tablet. I have a smartphone like everybody else in the world. Um, so this isn't anti-technology, but I just want to bring some awareness to how technology in, interacts with uh, connection and relationship. Um, and to be honest, in many ways, I am very thankful for technology. I am a, a very extroverted person, and so I love the, all the ways that I can stay connected and be in touch with people. Um, I grew up, um, probably like some of you, many of you, uh, in a home that just had a landline. Uh, I remember the day when we got like a caller ID and we could screen calls, and I was like, ooh, this is fancy. Um, and then I... Uh, when I was in high school, and this will, will date me, um, when I was in high school was when I got my first cell phone, and I had one of these bad boys. Anybody else have the Nokia? Yeah, that's right. Played Snake on it, the, still the best cell phone game of all time. Um, and I, I loved it, it was great. Uh, you know, I could call my friends when I was going someplace, uh, when we were trying to meet up, or if I was gonna be late. I'm sure my parents were really happy that I had it as a teenager and was driving, that you know, in case something happened, I could call them. Um, 
and that was awesome. And then I went off to college. I went out of state for college. And, one of the, and literally the first thing I did, or, or something I did the first day of college, is I went to the mall and I got a cell phone. And I had to make sure, you know, it had a free long distance plan because that was a thing um, back then. And that really helped me stay connected with my parents out of state. Um, and then I feel like when I was in college was when technology really picked up speed. Uh, spring of my freshman year was when my college was allowed into the Facebook network. Um, it, this is back in the days when you needed a, a, a college email to get into Facebook. And I remember when it happened, I found out kind of late, and it was like 10 minutes before I had to leave for class, and so I really quickly like made a, a profile, and I was like, well, I'll, I'll finish this later. And so it was like half done, and I went to my class, and I came back, and I had like 20 friend requests. And I was like, this is awesome. You know, it felt like this huge affirmation. You know, these are all people that I knew at some point from high school, and I was like, people really like me. Like, that, that feels so good. <laughs> and then time went on, and Facebook expanded on what it did, and Twitter came along, and Instagram, and then smartphones came along and kind of changed everything. And technology is just very very uh, prevalent in our world. And there's a lot of good with this technology. Um, you know, I've been able to stay connected with my parents when I've lived in a different state for like 15 years. I've been able to stay connected in relationship with my brother, um, who has also been in a different state for that number of years. I have some relationships that I developed from college and afterwards that now live in a different state, and, and I still get together with them virtually online, either over the phone or with a video call, pretty consistently, and it's a huge gift to my life. Like, it's unbelievably rare to have friendships that last over a decade because we're a very mobile society. Everybody moves all the time. And so it's a huge gift, and in many ways, um, that technology has helped. And so that's some of the good. And, and th not only has it helped us stay connected, because you have to have connection for relationship, but it's also created this different like, level of relationship. Um, the best example of this that I can think of is I had a, a friend who uh, his dad died of ALS um, uh, about a decade ago. And he, when it happened, uh, he received over the next several days a whole lot of texts of kind of consolation from a group of friends. And as he reflected on this a couple of years later, he, he said he was so thankful for text messaging because it was the perfect vehicle for these people to reach out to him. Because right? these, these weren't people that were good enough friends that he wanted to talk to on the phone. He wasn't in a place to have phone conversations. He didn't want them to take him out for dinner or coffee. But it was such a gift to him that these people took the time, who knew him well enough and knew the situation to extend kindness through text message. And that's the result of technology. And so technology helps with connection, kind of creates this other level of relationship, and those are all good things. But there's also some twisted good with technology. And, and I want to emphasize it's twisted good, like, and this is true of most bad things in the world. They're not inherently bad. They're just good things that have been twisted. And what we've done with technology is we've taken this idea that God says that to Adam, it is not good for him to be alone. That it's not good for us to be alone, to be in isolation. And we've flipped it, and we've twisted it to mean it is good to be connected to everyone all the time. And when this happens, technology moves from, instead of its proper place of supplementing real relationship, technology often subverts our ability to have relationship with others. 
Because while we may have constant connection with people all the time, we're not actually fostering a real relationship. Tish Harrison Warren, in her book, The Liturgy of the Ordinary, she has this image that she writes about. She says, if humans rescue a baby animal in the wild, it's said to be imprinted because it accepts the human as its mother and will look for, towards that human for all good things for the rest of its life, and it can't live freely in the wild. And she says, this is what technology does to us. Many of us start our days being imprinted by our technology, and we continue to go to it again and again throughout the day. And there are two ways in particular that technology imprints us that really hinders our capacity for real relationship. One is technology teaches us and shapes us how to present an edited life. You know, one of the best things about text messaging and emails is that we can say exactly what we want to say. We can type it out, we can read it, we can reread it, we can edit it, we can change it, and we can say exactly what we want. And same thing when we post on social media. We can pick the perfect picture. We can pick the one out of the hundred, right, with just the right lighting, with just the right filters to get some sort of affirmation. And that's good. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, but what ends up happening is that becomes a way that we relate to each other in real life. That we think in our heads, how can I present the best version of myself? Or how can I present a version of myself that will get affirmation and approval from this person? And what ends up happening is that it greatly hinders our ability for real relationship. Because we present an image of ourselves. And this image may get affirmation and approval and get liked, but that's not really us. And so we actually dig in deeper into our loneliness when we do this, because we know that people don't really like us. They just like this image that we've presented. So not only does technology uh, uh, imprint us as we present an edited image, an edited life, but it also imprints on us that solutions are a swipe away. Uh, a couple months ago, the University of Michigan invited uh, Christian philosopher Jamie Smith uh, for, to, to give a talk, and he um, emphasized this idea by, by highlighting a, a beer commercial. And a quick note about this beer commercial, like most beer commercials, is it's inherently sexist, so my apologies for that. Um, but this is what happens in the commercial. There are some guys, and they're at a restaurant, and their food comes out, and, and it's just terrible-looking food. But the guy solves it, just like you do on your phone. You just swipes to the left, and better food comes. Right? And then they're at a concert, and uh, they can't really hear the music very well, and another guy just goes, oh, well, I'll solve this, and he just you know, turns up the volume, and they can hear the music. And then the next day, they're at a beach, and there are some women in bikinis, of course, uh, far away, and the guy just zooms in, and the women are right there. Right? Our phones are amazing things. They have amazing power, and they give us this great power that we can fix and do so much just by swiping our fingers, but that often imprints us, and we carry that into real life. And as we know, real life has many situations that we can't just swipe away, that we can't just resolve with a quick fix, and we're often ill-equipped to respond to them because of how much technology has imprinted us. And so I want to offer just a, a brief metaphor for you to think about as you engage with technology and connection and relationship that I find really helpful. And it's this idea of, uh, this metaphor of oatmeal and brown sugar. 
oatmeal is like the best breakfast from a health perspective that, that you can really have, right? All that fiber, throw some fresh fruit in there. I like it in the wintertime because it's nice and warm. And for me, like oatmeal gets a lot better when you just sprinkle just the right amount of brown sugar on top, right? It is a great breakfast. But if I'm going to convince myself that oatmeal is really good, I have to be mindful, right, of how much brown sugar I put in. Right? There's certain ratios where it stops being healthy and just starts to be a way for me to consume lots of sugar. <laughs> right? And you can imagine, like, if you switched those proportions and had like, this huge chunk of brown sugar with like, just a little bit of oatmeal on top, right, maybe it would taste good in the moment. Uh, maybe not. But maybe it would taste good in the moment. But it wouldn't give me the strength I need for the day. Right? I would crash. And that's so true of a lot of the ways that we, when we engage with people relationally, when we engage with one another relationally, is we need to take a moment and think, like, is this kind of an oatmeal interaction? Or is it a brown sugar? Like, it's nice and it's affirming to get likes and responses in this way. But if that's the substance of our relational life, it won't give us strength for the struggles of real life. But if we continue to engage people and meet face-to-face and have real phone conversations and use technology and have video conferences with, and calls with friends that we've known for years, it can give us real strength. Because life isn't just a swipe away from being fixed. Right? We engage many and encounter many difficulties, and if we don't have real community, real relational strength, we won't be able to handle the job losses. We won't be able to handle the difficulties in our marriage. We won't be able to handle the uncertainties of life where we don't know whether we should take that job or not. And so be mindful of our oatmeal versus our brown sugar moments. So a couple suggestions for how to do community in a di- digital age. Uh, the first suggestion would just be this, to take stock of the impact that technology has upon you. Technology is like water to fish. It's all around us. There are great opportunities and there are dangerous liabilities. And again, the question isn't whether we should use technology or not, but how we use technology. Because we're a church that uses technology, and I'm a person that uses it as well. And in some regards, technology has drawn us closer than ever before. And on the other hand, it has also separated us further apart from one another than ever before. I think this is uh, really well illustrated in this short, brief video uh, of Will Ferrell with his family around the dinner table. I think these videos are funny, and it's the kind of funny that's funny, because especially if you're a parent, this hits so close to home, right? And even if you, even if, I mean, like, we are so distracted that we are incapable of being fully present with those who are around us. And so just take stock of the impact that technology has on you and your oatmeal relationships, right? Don't let the brown sugar overpower your oatmeal relationships. That's the first suggestion. Second suggestion is this. Reclaim the art, the lost art of friendship. 
Some of you have hundreds of friends on Facebook. A few of you have thousands of friends. But friends are not necessarily people who uh, comment on your status update or like your photos on Instagram. Maybe one way to diagnose this is, is kind of the 3 a.m. test. Right? Like, imagine you're stranded in Detroit in the middle of the night. Who could you call at 3 a.m. who would get up and come and pick you up and take you home? If you even have one or two of those friends, you are blessed. And so reclaim the lost art of friendship. That means conversations, asking good questions, listening well. Here's the thing, too. It's not just, you don't just need one or two friendships. Uh, it's like concentric circles. You need to go broader as well, too. We, we need, like, uh, dozens of friends. We need, like, a tribe. We need a family. We need a community. Right, uh, I think of, which is why we often suggest and encourage you to join a community group. These are groups of people who meet every week, uh, 10 to 20 people who get to know one another, dive into each other's lives. And uh, I remember talking to one guy who recently lost his job. And then when he was telling me about this whole experience, and he said to me, you know, Sung, losing my job was one of the worst experiences of my life that actually turned out to be one of my best experiences in life. I was like, what do you, your best? He's like, yeah. My community group rallied around our family. Our church came through in ways that I just could not believe, turning this horrible, miserable experience to one of the most redemptive, best experiences that I've ever had. So after hearing that story, it reminded me of the image of these huge redwood trees in California. They are the largest living things in the world. They are the tallest trees on earth. And a number of them actually stand taller than the Statue of Liberty. I mean, they just reach for the skies. And you would think that trees this tall and this large would have a tremendous root system that goes hundreds of feet down into the earth. But that's actually not the case, right? Redwoods actually have a very shallow root system. So how do they withstand the winds and the storms that come through their way? When, when, when it blows and, and, and like the way they withstand it is that if you actually look at, at, at a tree, the roots, are, they're, they're pretty shallow, but they are interlocked with all the other trees around them. So this whole force of redwood trees are all connected to one another that provide support and, and sustain each other in ways that they could not if they were standing alone. So two suggestions. Take stock of the impact that technology has and reclaim the lost art of friendship. Our longing for friendship, our longing to be in relationship with one another, it, it is a signpost because it points to our longing to be friends with God. One of the best things about God is that in our relationships with each other, we all have a little bit of fear that we will be seen and known and rejected. I think one of the more heartbreaking things that, that people go through, that we go through in life, is the end of a dating relationship, especially if you're the one being dumped. Because in some ways, it feels like this person has gotten to know me and has seen me in ways that others haven't, and they've rejected me. 
And the good news of the gospel is that when God sees us, the God who knows us better than we know ourselves, his response to us isn't to reject us, but to move towards us. And he did this in Jesus Christ, who, who loved us in such a way so deeply that he experienced the rejection of the cross on our behalf. And now he loves us, and that shows that he loves us. And he told his disciples what he tells us is that we're no longer servants of God, but he calls us friends of God. And Jesus is a friend who is always with us, always beside us, who always goes ahead of us and who is behind us, who is there in good times and bad, and has promised to never leave us or reject us again because he experienced the ultimate rejection on our behalf. And so as God has extended his gracious friendship to us, it empowers us to go into this world and to extend his gracious friendship to the whole world that desperately needs it. Let me pray for us.